of the greatest composers of all time and possibly the greatest example of a child prodigy throughout all history and that is Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Let's jump right in. Wolfgang was born January 27, 1756 in Salzburg, Austria. And Europe was kind of going through this weird transition, right? The Holy Roman Empire had kind of divided into all these small, semi-self-governing principalities. And there was like rivalries in between them. And there were these city-states like Salzburg and Vienna and Prague were all city-states. And they were kind of in the hands of the aristocracy. So rich people who were kind of in with the um, nobilities. And so there was just kind of a unique time. The music of the Renaissance and the Baroque periods was transitioning towards more full-bodied compositions. So just like more complex uh, instrumentation and it was just kind of a transition politically with everything that was happening in Europe and then musically, all the stuff from kind of leaving the Renaissance time. And Wolfgang was the only surviving son of his father, Leopold, and his mother, Maria. Uh, they had a couple, um, all the other kids beside one daughter died in childbirth. And uh, the dad, Leopold, was a successful composer and violinist. Uh, he did a lot of stuff. Um, kind of worked for the the um, local government, you know, and, and composed a lot of religious music. Well, Wolfgang's mom, um, Anna Maria, she was middle class family. Um, you know, her family was some of the local community leaders, and and yeah, and he had one sister, and her name was after her mother. Um, uh, so her mother's name was. Anna Maria, and then the, the daughter's name was Maria Anna, but they called her Nanel, I guess. And uh, their dad, being a successful composer, he got them both, uh, Wolfgang, I mean, sorry, Mozart and his sister, right into music really young. So his sister started playing when she was seven, and Wolfgang was only three. And he was kind of watching her playing a bunch, and he started to be able to mimic what she was playing. And he started to show a strong understanding of chords and tonality and tempo. And his dad saw how special this was and started tutoring as well. And um, their dad, Leopold and Wolfgang, had an interesting relationship. Um, as with most child prodigies, uh, often they are created through hard work and um, intense pressure from their parents to you know, kind of live up to their parents' uh, lofty expectations. And so it was with Mozart. His dad pushed him really hard. And he, uh, I mean, even early on, he started to show signs of excelling beyond his father's teaching. And he was at the age of five when this was happening. So his, his dad was kind of blown away about how amazing uh, you know, his kids were, especially Wolfgang. So in 1762, um, so this is when he's about five or six years old. Leopold takes them on a tour. And this is one of many tours that they went on as a family. And, and Mozart uh, went on a bunch eventually by himself. And Wolfgang was about six. And his sister, Nanel, was 11. And they went to the court of Bavaria, Munich. And 
they traveled to Paris and London and Zurich and they they were just performing. It was almost like a circus act because they were these child prodigies. And he met all these famous people along the way. Uh, he met um, Johann Christian Bach in London, who had a strong influence on Wolfgang. And But these trips were... Um, he, he actually, kind of fun fact, he also met um, Marie Antoinette, who was just a little bit older than him. And uh, she was... Uh, I think she, yeah, she was pretty young at the time. She was just, yeah, she was probably like six or seven as well, like I said. And uh, apparently the legend goes that he slipped and and uh, she helped him up and then he like proposed to her as like a little kid. That, that's just kind of how the legend goes. These trips were long and difficult. And they were usually traveling in primitive conditions. And they were kind of waiting for the, these noble, uh, the nobility to kind of invite them and reimburse them. And so a lot of times, uh, you know, Wolfgang himself and other family members got really sick and it kind of limited their performance ability and their schedule, and it was kind of tough. Um, well, a couple years later, when Wolfgang's 13, his uh, father departed from Salzburg for Italy. And uh, so Wolfgang and his father, they went on another trip. And Nanerl, his sister, even though she was like really good at the time, once you got to an age where you were able to get married, uh, the custom was that you weren't allowed to show your artistic talent in public. So that's pretty stupid. But so it was just Mozart and his dad, and they went on this outing. It was a kind of a long one. It was like two years. And Leopold just wanted to show everyone his son's abilities and about what he could do. And one of the cool stories is that while they were in Rome, there was a... Uh, there's this um, this uh, song. I don't know if song's the right word, but there was this uh, musical piece um, called Gregorio Allegheris Misaridi. Don't know how I'm saying that, right? But um, anyways, this guy, Gregorio Allegheri, he wrote this song, and it was like this sacred song, and it was only allowed to be performed in the Vatican like a few times a year during the most sacred times a year during these religious holidays and no one could write it down and like there was just this mysteriousness that kind of went with this song and Wolfgang was in the Sistine Chapel where it was played at that time he just happened to be there at that time of year and he without just hearing it one time he wrote down almost perfectly the entire song and you couldn't find the music anywhere right it was kind of like outlawed to the point where if you got caught with the music, you could be excommunicated from the church. Anyways, they ended up sneaking out, and then word kind of got out a year later, and the Pope was like super pumped about it, that he was so amazing that he could do that. But pretty amazing. So anyway, so he's going on this trip, and uh, he starts writing some operas, and you know things are going well. And uh, they come back uh, late into 1773, and their dad, Leopold, his benefactor, had passed away and got this new benefactor. And this new benefactor made Mozart become the assistant concert master. And uh, it was okay for him. You know, nothing too special. They had, he had a small salary and he developed a passion for the violin, for violin concertos. And uh, he produced what came to be only five. So didn't write a lot of them, but I think this is when... Um, he produced the only five he ever wrote of these. And he wrote some piano concertos. And so he's kind of growing, but uh, he didn't really like it. 
this position. You know, it's kind of like whatever. And he had to write a lot of stuff for the church, you know, and kind of follow their rules. And he didn't really like that. And so in August 1777, he set out on a trip to find better employment. And um, the, you know, Leopold, his dad, wasn't allowed to leave. And so his mom, Anna Maria, accompanied him. And they went to Paris and to Munich. And it, it looked like it was going to be good. And then everything started kind of falling through. They started running out of money. He had to, like, pawn off a bunch of valuable stuff just to get by. And at the, the lowest point of the trip, his mom fell ill and she died on July uh, 3rd, uh, 1778. And he was so distraught by this. He was so afraid to even tell his dad. He actually had someone else tell his dad. And his dad uh, kind of blamed Mozart for it. Um, that it was his fault that he took his mom with him. And if he would have just kind of stayed here and been grateful for his position, you know. And anyway, so he was pretty bummed. And he kind of guilted. He, uh, they kind of distanced each other. And Leopold kind of guilted him into, into kind of coming back because... He said, you're going to kill me too, you know, by causing me all the stress. And so um, after Leopold finds out, you know, they're going through all this trouble, he actually negotiates a better job for his son back in Salzburg. And so he comes back, 1779, he comes back and he's doing all these church works, including one of his pieces, the Coronation Mass. And he's working there, he's doing okay. But, uh, yeah, once again, he wasn't loving it. And so in March of that year, he actually gets summoned by uh, an archbishop um, in Vienna. And so he goes over there, and they kind of they just kind of have a quarrel. They don't really like each other. Musicians at the time were kind of treated like servants. So we talked about how the governments and what was going on in Europe, they were kind of run by aristocrats, right? And so it's just these rich people who would pay you to come perform, you know? And that's what Mozart did. And his whole life, he tried to kind of fit in with the nobility. And he tried to um, be like them. And uh, sometimes he got pretty rich, but he never was truly one of them. And so his life kind of went up and down, at least financially, with having money, not having money, having money, not having money. And um, eventually, he decides to settle in Vienna and becomes a freelance performer and composer. And so... He starts kind of teaching people um, music, takes on some pupils, starts writing stuff. And this kind of becomes like the best part of his life. So kind of went down and kind of back up. And um, he's also thinking about marrying this girl um, named Constanza. And his father did not want him to marry this girl. He thought it would interrupt his career. And so word got out that he was going to marry her. And then Mozart like wrote his dad, like, don't worry, dad, I'm not going to marry her. But then, like, four or five months later, he was asking his father to marry her, and his dad disapproved. And um, we don't know exactly what they said, because apparently the letters were destroyed by his wife, Constanza. But, um, yeah, they, they fell in love, and they were married, and um, eventually the father did kind of consent. And uh, Constanza and Wolfgang ended up having six kids, but only two survived infancy. So back then, it was just like flipping that coin, you know? And uh, so then the next couple years, he gets really obsessed with uh, Bach and someone, uh, another composer, George Frederick Handel. Don't want to say that wrong, but um, 
anyways, uh, they became super tight, super close, um, especially the latter, and he kind of changed his style. He started composing in a more Baroque style and kind of influenced a lot of his later compositions, such as Passages and The Magic Flute, which you've probably heard of, or uh, The Symphony Number no. 41. A lot of these music, uh, these titles you might not recognize, but when you play them, you'll, you'll hear it right away. And um, anyways, he ended up writing a bunch of quartets dedicated to um, one of his good friends, Hayden. And uh, anyways, uh, Hayden was also a composer and they became really close and they would perform like impromptu concerts and, and do stuff together. And yeah, so they just became really tight. So throughout this time, he became sort of a celebrity, you know, he kind of went through this rut where it's like, you're the childhood prodigy. Now you're not a child anymore, you know? It's just kind of a tough thing to go through, kind of outliving your past. And But he started doing it, and he started becoming famous, writing all these operas, and it just got his name going. Everyone was talking about him all throughout Europe, and he became pretty rich. So they enjoyed this. Him and his wife, Constance, enjoyed this lavish lifestyle. They lived in this great apartment in Vienna. They sent their, their kid uh, to like one of the most expensive boarding schools. They had servants. And Leopold, the, uh, Mozart's father, would kind of get mad at him, you know, for just kind of being reckless with the, all of his money. But he kind of had to fit in. It was kind of one of these things you had to fake it till you make it almost, you know. And little side note, he ends up joining, uh, becomes a Freemason. So not much to see there, but becomes a Freemason. And... Um, So, 1782, 1785, and I apologize, this is probably the most uh, prolific time of his performance life, especially 1784. At one time, he actually performed or appeared in 22 concerts in a five-week period. So, he is just going off, doing all this stuff, and uh, this one biographer, Maynard Solomon, he says that, People were so excited to see them because they were given the opportunity of witnessing the transformation and perfection of a ma major musical genre. So he's just exploding. And during this time, he also starts like keeping a catalog of his own music, which a lot of people think was him realizing or being aware of his place in musical history, that he was actually going to be someone that we were going to talk about for a long time. And so that was like 1784. Then it kind of dips, right? So then the extravagant lifestyle starts to take a toll. And although he's being successful, he starts to have these huge financial difficulties, just kind of living beyond his means. And like we said, he kind of wanted to live like an, air, an uh, aristocrat. And so he started, like, he started uh, borrowing money, and then he would have to get a concert. And when he got his concert, he would pay for it. And... Just things weren't going super well. And there was also this guy named Antonio uh, Salieri. And he kind of was associated with the church. And they had this rivalry throughout their whole life. So he felt that the best way to kind of attain a more stable and lucrative income would be through a court appointment. And it wasn't easy to get a, you know appointment in the court especially because people kind of lean towards Italian composers. It sounds weird, you know, that they would be like leaning towards uh, a certain ethnicity or nationality and not on the fact that Mozart was so big. But 
there was this huge influence of uh, someone named Antonio Salieri, and the, Mozart and Salieri had this weird relationship. Some of it's a legend; we don't really know, but we do know that they didn't like each other. They had like this weird rivalry. They even made movies about their rivalry and about you know all the different things that went on, and we can talk about that a little bit later when we get into his death. But um, toward the end of 1785, Mozart met uh, this guy named Lorenzo de Ponte, a Venetian composer and poet, and they collaborated on an opera, and it did well. And um, so this kind of led him to a second collaboration, uh, Don Giovanni, which you've probably heard, and that did really well. And so a couple years later, in uh, the end of 1787, Emperor Joseph II appoints Mozart as the chamber composer. And it was an honor that was, you know, Mozart was pumped about, but it was probably mostly to keep him from leaving Vienna for greener pastures. And it was, it was part-time, it was low pay, but it only required him to compose dances for the annual ball. So it was like pretty chill, you know, it's kind of like do whatever you want, here's some money, we don't want you to stay here. Um, but in 1780, um, or the end of 1780, sorry, so a few years later, his fortunes get even worse. And he was performing less, so he made less money. Austria was in a war, right? And so the ability of the aristocrats to, to pay for people to play their music and stuff kind of went down the hill. And uh, his family expenses were high, and he just couldn't keep up with everything. So he's borrowing money and just not going going very well. And he called him, uh, quote, his black thoughts. And a lot of people, this is when they refer to him possibly as manic depressant, but it was just this really hard time for him. A few years later in his mid-30s, uh, he kind of blew up again. He's just kind of going up and down, right? And so there's this great period of, of productivity and personal healing. Some of his best works come out of this time, and he was able to revive much of his uh, public notoriety because he would have these repeated performances of his works, kind of like throwbacks. And it started to look good, and you know some wealthy patrons were kind of you know giving him money and helping him out and paying for him to make music. Um, so he paid off a lot of his debts. But um, just as things were getting good again, he started getting sick. So in September 1791, he starts to get sick. By the time it hits November, he's confined to bed, and his sister comes in and to kind of nurse him back to health. But he wasn't doing, you know, he was just, it, it was kind of going downhill from there. And he des- he died that December at the age of 35, which was actually even young for for that time. And the cause of death's uncertain. Uh, a lot, of, I mean, we didn't really have autopsies back then, and people weren't like, you know, figuring things out as clearly as they are now. But people would just say it was like a, a big fever. Um, but a lot of people have talked about him possibly being poisoned, which... From what I've researched, a lot of people kind of dispute and kind of throw that out. Um, and, you know, a lot of crazy stories with his rival, which I mentioned, Salieri. But, um, yeah, so he dies. His sister ends up, uh, you know, selling a lot of his unpublished manuscripts to pay off a bunch of family debts. There's another kind of uh, folk tale that he was buried in a unmarked pauper's grave, which isn't entirely accurate, but it is sort of true. He... Uh, he was like a third-ranked uh, citizen, and so he didn't get like this great grave. He just was put into a grave, and some say he actually had a little mark that said who he was. Others say he wasn't, but apparently his grave was only like 
paid for it only paid for like 10 years so after 10 years the cemetery could dig up his body and dispose of it and use it for someone else so pretty crazy but that's his life uh just a kind of a quick summary of it we got a bunch of cool stories with this guy and so we kind of want to um kind of cut out a lot of the fun stuff from his summary and kind of save him for the cool story thing so let's just jump right in and go over some cool stories So some of these stories might not be entirely true. There's definitely some, uh, you know, folklore to them, but they're pretty sweet. So his um, really good friend Hayden, they talked about um, the one that he like kind of would do these impromptu concerts with and they wrote stuff together. So uh, one day he challenged him to play this piece and they wanted to see who could play it better. And so Hayden gets up there. He's really talented, plays it super well. And then gets about halfway through and stops abruptly. And there's a, a part in the song where um, there's notes that need his left hand to be on one side of the, uh, the, the piano and his right hand to be on the totally opposite side. Meanwhile, there's a note directly in the middle. And he's like, this is impossible. No one can play this. And he gets up. So then Mozart sits down. You can almost imagine like a smirk on his face and plays it perfectly, just as good as Hayden. It gets to that same point where the, the left hand stretched to the left, the right hand's all the way to the right, and without missing a beat, he throws his head down and hits the note with his nose and continues to play it. Pretty cool story. I really hope it's true. Um, another one that's pretty sweet is that uh, this kid came up to Mozart and asked him how to write a symphony. And Mozart said, you got to you know, study for six or eight years and, and then maybe do an apprenticeship. Uh, for four to five years and then write sonatas like kind of start you know younger then do string quartets then piano concertos and all this stuff and he's like I don't want to do all that stuff like I want to write it right now and Mozart said you're too young you can't write it you know you're too young to write um, a symphony and then he said well you wrote one when you were eight years old and Mozart said yes but I didn't have to ask how which is pretty baller reply um, so like we said, uh, he started composing at the age of five, which is like freaking ridiculous. Half of his symphonies were composed between the ages eight and 19, which is just crazy. Um, a lot of people compared him to Shakespeare during the time. Um, and they said that, yeah, they just talked about how amazing he was. That Hayden guy, the Austrian composer we're talking about, he said, before God... And as an honest man, Wolfgang was the greatest composer I'd ever seen, I'd ever encountered either in person or through published music. So he was just so amazing. Um, he, he was a little bit weird, like we talked about, right? So a lot of people think he had obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, and kind of fixated on objects. We don't really know. Um, but yeah, when he got married, he would like was really worried about his wife about really weird stuff, like leaving the house. It like terrifies me when you leave and don't go to the casino. And like if you take a bath, don't take it that much and don't take it for that long or wait for me to come home to take a bath. And like he was just kind of worried about her, I guess, dying or getting hurt. I don't know. He was just like uh, pretty strange. And people even thought that he had Tourette's syndrome. 
And uh, his sister talked about how he was so impulsive. He had no self-control. So, yeah, it was just like a pretty strange, pretty strange guy. But apparently he was really short. Um, they don't say how short he was, but apparently that was like his only distinguishing um, uh, physical feature was that he was really short. Uh, this is like a pretty cool story. So while he was on his deathbed, uh, a mysterious figure came and asked him to compose a requiem, which is a song for the dead. And he started getting into his mind that it was that that mysterious figure who came was like an angel or something. And he was composing a requiem uh, for his own death, for his own funeral. And he just became obsessed with it. And he actually never finished it, but um, one of his students finished it after. But that's what he, he died with it in his hands. His dead body had the requiem, the papers that he was writing. And it turned out it was this guy who would kind of um, petition famous composers to write stuff and then kind of rip it off as their own, especially after they died. That was kind of his plan. People kind of debate that, whether he really was trying to do that or whether he, whether he wasn't. But it was like really mysterious for, um, for Mozart and it kind of messed with him. Um, we talked about his grave not being marked and all the mysteriousness that went with that. There's this skull that's in a museum in Salzburg that says it's his skull. In 2006, they did a DNA test with his like great-grandmother and a niece, and they found that not only did the DNA not match the skull, but the, the grandmother and the niece didn't have DNA that matched. So they were like pretty weirded out. They didn't really know what to do with it. Um, so the, it was kind of decided as inconclusive. But um, yeah, so we don't really know. Um, you know, exactly uh, if it's his or not. I don't know if it's not a big deal. Uh, we talked about how he wrote that uh, piece, Don Giovanni. Well, apparently uh, he was like procrastinating, had a late night, like was drinking a bunch, didn't really care. It was due the next morning. And he's like, I'm going to work on it. I'm going to work on it. Passes out, wakes up at 5 a.m. And he woke up, banged out everything in two hours and delivered it to the guy who uh, was paying for it. So just kind of gives you a little peek into into you know his personality a little bit. There's also a bunch of pieces of his um, musical writings that are like blank. They have a lot of blank space in it. And people um, say this is because he was really good at improvising, that he just kind of would waste time writing stuff out. He already knew it. He knew how to play it. He could play it right now. He doesn't need the paper and so he'd just kind of write down a little bit and then be like, I don't got time for this. And then he would just play it and, or improvise, kind of make stuff up. Um, in like concerts, like where people were paying to come watch him. He was just amazing at improvising. Okay, let's uh, move on and jump into some fun quotes. The music is not in the notes, but in the silence between. I pay no attention whatever to anybody's praise or blame. I simply follow my own feelings. Neither a lofty degree of intelligence nor imagination nor both together go to the making of a genius. Love, love, love. That is the soul of a genius. To talk well and eloquently is a very great art. But that's an equally great one is to know the right moment to stop. What's even worse than a flute? Two flutes. A man of ordinary talent will always be ordinary, whether he travels or not. 
but a man of superior talent will go to pieces if he remains forever in the same place. When I feel well and in a good humor, or when I'm taking a drive or walking after a good meal, or in the night when I cannot sleep, thoughts crowd into my mind as easily as you could wish. I am not thoughtless, thoughtless, but I am prepared for anything, and as a result can wait patiently for whatever the future holds in store, and I'll be able to endure it. Awesome. Okay, let's move on to our last section, just kind of talk a little about why he's on this list. So Time Magazine has him as you know top 20 most influential people who have ever lived. I think with music and art, it's really cool to see, it's really easy to see how influential you were based on, you know, just time and if people are still listening to your music, which they still are today. You know, it's been 200 years, over 200 years, and people are still listening to Mozart and he's inspired so many people, which is just crazy. I mean, if you think about how many uh, musical artists there are today and all the different, you know, the rap game and rock and roll and country and how you just have these five minutes of fame. And then there's someone doing the same thing that you are. And I think I've heard a definition of, you know, what a genius is or, or what it takes to produce something that's genius. And it's something that outlasts your lifetime, you know, something that kind of continues to carry on. And Mozart did that. Undoubtedly. I mean, I think he was a strange, weird dude. I think he had a tough life. His mom died. He felt responsible, or at least his dad, you know, said he was responsible for that. His dad was aggressive and pushed him. And, you know, he started off so young. I mean, we see that today with people like Miley Cyrus or someone who gets into Hollywood so young and how it just kind of messes with them, you know? And that was kind of, you know, he was a an older version, you know, of Miley Cyrus almost, just kind of traveling and seeing all these people. But at the same time, he had this weird, this, this weird problem of being with them but not being one of them. And so always striving and trying to be, you know, something he's not uh, or something they wouldn't allow him to be, I guess. So he was a weird guy, a strange dude, but man, he just produced amazing music. And... I don't think anyone on this entire list was more of a child protege, or at least not to the public, you know? They might have had it in them, but this guy at the age of five, five and six, was traveling around Europe, you know, playing and presenting his talents to kings and emperors and princes and princesses, which is just absolutely amazing. So I think it doesn't take much argument to put Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart in the category of you know, one of the most influential people who have ever lived. Thanks for listening, everybody. Appreciate it. If you got any tips, comments, suggestions, feel free to email us, worldchangerspod at gmail.com. Thanks. We'll see you next week. <laughs>